0: We're pleased to announce the first coach educational workshop for 2020, which is happening on April 18th in Edinburgh. This workshop will be exploring the use of parkour for sport coaches, as well as exploring the benefits and application of parkour as a donor sport in your specific context. This should be a fantastic event but places are limited to just 16 so tickets are 25 pounds you can find the link for these by searching for parkour for sport coaches on the event bright website or heading to www.athleticevolution.co.uk so welcome to the podcast today i'm speaking to dr mike hislop who is a researcher within the technical services department at world rugby so welcome to the podcast mike thanks very much for having me rob it's brilliant to get you on. So for those who aren't familiar with you and, and the work that you do, can you give us a bit of an overview of your kind of background into your position at, at World Rugby and how you've ended up there?
1: Yeah, sure. So since 2017, I've seventeen, uh, I've I've been a researcher within our technical services department, which it's a, it's a pretty diverse department within World Rugby. It kind of caters to a lot of areas around player welfare, so injury, injury prevention, but also Things like game analysis, uh, anti-doping uh, and also taking care of the laws and, uh, and also the medical aspects as well. So um, it's, a, it's a pretty diverse role and uh, that diversity certainly grown since I've started, which it keeps it quite fresh and exciting as well.
0: Mm. So obviously you're, you're a bit of a former rugby player yourself in terms of your own athletic background.
1: Absolutely, yeah. Um, Actually, recently came back to play in the game as well after a few years away. So, uh, yeah, body doesn't quite thank me. It doesn't recover as quickly as it used to, but uh, no,
0: it's good to be back. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So any other kind of sports in your your youth or is it just rugby as a whole? Uh, I mean, rugby was probably the big one, but I'd, I'd
1: also kind of a little bit unconventional I did things like martial arts uh, a little bit of squash and cricket as well so generally anything that was was going around I'd, I'd generally try and be involved in any of those sports at all but uh, yeah certainly it all sort of came back to rugby as I grew up and sort of went into adolescence I guess.
0: Mm. So can you give us a bit more detail around I guess the kind of collaboration for your your PhD research and and what kind of came out of the back of that so it's obviously a, a pretty interesting program so I'm keen to dig into that with you
1: yeah sure so i guess probably to start with it the kind of phd itself it didn't quite run to how i understood a conventional phd would work i guess normally what would happen is it's kind of all driven by the student to begin with in that the student formulates you know a research idea or they have a question they'd like to answer and then they would formulate the project from that they'd go out and and kind of seek funding seek a supervisor if they manage to receive funding and then they would work with that supervisor to conduct the project um I guess in my case, it was the other way around in that if you went back to 2013, England rugby or the RFU, as they're also known, they kind of had a project in mind in the schoolboy game in England. And and attached to that, they put some deliverables in place. Um, A couple of the key ones were around injury surveillance. So actually trying to get some firm information around what the injury picture looks like in the schoolboy game. That hadn't been done for about five years um, prior to that. And then also doing a little bit of work around risk factor identification. So, you know, trying to identify characteristics of players that might predispose them to being injured and and vice versa, things that might be actually protective of them getting injured, so reducing that risk. Um, But really the highlight one was that, they basically wanted to develop a what we would probably call a preventive exercise program. Now, those kind of programs have been around for a few years. FIFA had done a version called the 11 Plus that listeners may well be aware of. That's probably the most common one. Um, but really, the RFU wanted to see whether or not something similar Um, whether that principle could be applied to rugby and whether or not it could successfully reduce injury risk across um not just the schoolboy game but youth rugby in general so those were the kind of the key things there really um but essentially my my phd was roadmarked with the end goals in mind that it's just we had to work out the most appropriate way to you know to go out and achieve them
0: Mm. so what were the kind of studies that you ran and what were the kind of uh, primary findings so i mean we probably ran
1: three big studies um, or two studies that had the three big outcomes across. Obviously, we had our, our injury surveillance going on. So that was collecting injury data across the schools that were involved in in a couple of the other studies. Um, I, I guess probably the key findings were if we start with the risk factor, we did a little bit of work around um, sort of movement competency. As you can imagine, you know, working with adolescent athletes, movement competency, particularly around things like the growth spurt can be, uh, you know, a pretty key consideration when you get adolescent awkwardness and, and things like that in play. Um, so one of the interesting findings we really did was we we did some movement screening testing using the functional movement screen on players aged 14 to 18. And really interesting thing was that it didn't really look like limitations of movement competency in and of themselves were associated with injury risk in those players what was interesting was if those players were reporting pains during those movements, um, which I think is important given that we were testing those players in the pre-season period. So it wasn't as if they'd had, um, you know, several weeks or months of rugby behind them. They'd probably been doing very little um, given that they'd probably been on their summer holidays beforehand. Um, we don't really know why they were asked. We didn't really know why those players were reporting pain, whether it was, you know, an unresolved injury or the lingering effects of a previous injury that had healed, for example, but, um, it probably isn't all that surprising um, for me, at least, as it was logical if a player reports pain during some fairly simple movement patterns, then how are they going to stand up to, to playing a sport like rugby for any period of time? Um, and there's still, you know, I think in terms of the applications, you look at there's often a debate around whether we should screen athletes or, you know, why we screen them. Uh, and for me, it probably came out with something quite simple in that it might just be that we need to look for simple tailored forms of screening as a means of identifying possible issues um, both from a pre-participation and and also you kind of return to play protocols but it may not be that it's movement limitations or issues with movement competency it might just be a simple case of is the player reporting pain during that movement at all Um, so that was kind of the the risk factor thing which I thought was quite interesting Um, really the main finding though was around the uh, what's become the activate program so um, we got involved with a about I think 30 schools across England that ran rugby programs um, from the under 15 to under 18 age groups, and essentially we ran what we would call a randomised control trial, um, which essentially means that we had our cohort of schools and then we split them up at random. Half randomly received the activate program, uh, and half randomly received uh, a control program, which I guess you would look at and see that it it kind of looks like your usual practice warm up. Um, and then over the course of this playing season, which for our youth guys was from 2015, 2016, um, so it kind of kicked off in September of 2015. And then some of the schools would finish at Christmas. A couple of the other schools ran through into the new year. It's um, just the way the seasons were structured. And over that time, they were collecting information about any injuries the players are picking up and also training sessions, matches and, and also whether they were doing the program or not. And and so what we found on the back of that was that teams using Activate during the playing season were suffering fewer match injuries. I think it was about 15 percent fewer uh, match injuries, which wasn't really a a great deal to to write home about. But when we started to unpackage that a little bit and, and see, well, okay, if we're not expecting a program like this to affect things like bone fractures, what about the injuries that it might affect, which your musculoskeletal system? So things like your ligaments, your tendons, your muscle injuries. And actually, it started to look a little bit more promising. So you were seeing reductions of about 25%, 26%. Um, And then ultimately, the one that was probably the real surprise for us was around concussions. So we were seeing that teams using Activate were suffering about 30% fewer concussions compared to the teams that were using this control program. Um, And what was interesting about that was that that wasn't really taking account of how compliant teams were with using the program. So that was comparing teams that didn't, might not have used the program at all and in that same co- cohort of teams there were teams that might have been using it religiously across both um, so that was the kind of interesting thing but that presented quite a conservative estimate uh, one of the other big things we looked at was around how often teams used the program and whether that had an impact on on whether there were fewer injuries and actually what we found was that teams using the program pretty much as often as they could were suffering you know injuries a few about 75 percent fewer injuries whereas initially that was So, you know, the effective dose in this is, is pretty remarkable. Um, uh, And that's Mm, kind of one of the other things that we've been working on as well. Um, So, I mean, that was, that was kind of the two really big findings from the, the randomized control trial. And then really lastly, we, we did a little bit of work around, if we know that compliance and how often you use the program is, is so important what kind of factors play a role then in, in coaches being more compliant or less compliant. So we did a little bit of work around the psychological and the behavioral factors of that, and ultimately, what we found was that when we ran these, these kind of studies, we had the coaches in at the start of the, the study to do a coach the coaches workshop. So we had them in, gave them a demonstration, gave them some of the background information for the program and, and answered any questions they had. And ultimately, what we found was at that point, if we'd have done that coach the coaches workshop, coaches at that point that had a stronger intention to use the program generally had higher compliance rates. So if you generally at that stage, you feel more confident. Um, You know, you've got a a stronger idea about how you're going to use the program. Generally, that translates to you using it more often. Uh, And then on top of that, coaches that had kind of a very firm action plan about how they were going to use the program, what resources they need, when they would do it, what kind of things they would need to consider when using the program. Again, that translated to a higher degree of compliance as well than the guys that, that didn't. So, yeah, those are the kind of some of the really big headline findings we had out of it. But yeah, undoubtedly the big one was the one that we'd been able to show that doing these kind of very simple exercises in a, a fairly structured way as part of your training routines and pre-match warm-ups could actually have a player welfare impact, um, where initially that that was uncertain.
0: Mm, and that's some, I mean, that's colossal findings, really, isn't it? When you consider the percentage of injuries that can be reduced and the the way that could impact your your ability to select select essentially almost a fully fit team.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you were looking at some of the injury rates, generally what you see is that injury rates tend to go up as as the players get older. Um, So there are a number of reasons why that might be. Um, But ultimately, if you can prepare your players for the demands of the game, um, that then translates to your athletic development benefits and And there are benefits that come directly from using the program. So things like if you're preparing the players for the demands of the game, the conditioning aspects, particularly in groups of players that might not have had much exposure to this kind of work before. Um, But then you've got the indirect stuff as well. So you talk about things like if you're having fewer injuries, that generally might translate to less time missed out of not just rugby, but your other sports as well, particularly those age groups where you've got you know, players that might be playing across multiple sports and playing levels. Um, And then ultimately, like you said, that 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 could then translate to things like player availability. So, you know, particularly if you're running uh, multiple age group or multiple teams at an age group, you know, the last thing a coach wants is throughout the season, whether they've got three or four injuries, that potentially may mean only running one team for a period of time until players start coming back. So, yeah, there's certainly a lot of benefits that stem from reducing the number of injuries your players suffer
0: hmm so for the uninitiated can you give us a bit of an overview of, of the activate program as it is today
1: yeah sure so yeah it's probably a few if you'd asked me this a few years ago i'd have given some really long-winded scientific uh, thing but I've, I've kind of boiled it down now thankfully and it's i guess if you're calling it something simple it would be a, a structured progressive set of activities that's designed to be used by coaches um, during rugby training sessions and also Pre-match warm-up routines. Um, I, I've spoken specifically about the youth version of it, but there is also a, a separate adult version that was also developed in parallel uh, for your adult community players. Um, it's essentially it's designed to be completed within about fifteen or twenty minutes. Um, as I said, there are four versions. There's, there's three youth versions and one adult. Um, so there's an under 15 version for your players aged 13 to 15 uh, an under 16 for players aged 15 and 16. And then there's an under 18 version, which is for your your, adult, your players aged sort of 16 to 18. And then also the adult version. Um, in terms of the youth version, it's got four levels. So essentially you've got these levels progressing over the course of a season, if you picture it that way. So you would start with level one, which is your, uh, your fairly simple set of exercises, quite introductory, and then as you progress through the levels over the period of the season, the challenge becomes progressively more so. Um, the adult version um, was designed primarily for the club game instead of the schools game. So club games generally about seven or nine months, depending on if you use your pre-season period, whereas the schools game in England at the time was about 12 weeks. So that was ultimately why there were four levels for the youth the adult version had uh, had seven levels uh, and then there was also a uh, sort of a match day specific version um, At the time it was developed, um, some of the feedback from coaches and players was that your match day warm ups in your adult community rugby were generally quite sacred. And uh, I think coaches and players were quite loath to change, you know, what they were doing, their routine, uh, you know, over the course of a season. So that was given as a a specific match day version. And then you had seven levels that could be progressed over the course of the season at, uh, at training sessions. Um, And then when you kind of unpack those levels, each each level had four parts. So if you you talk about a pre-match warm up or a training session, you would complete those four parts or as much of those four parts as you could. And those contain generally um, a variety of training methods. So you'd have things like a little bit of running based rehearsals and change of direction work, um, lower limbs and proprioception training. Um, body weight or partner resistance training. And then also you'd start to incorporate things like um, some change direction or landing rehearsal and then some plyometric activities as well. Um, And then in terms of how long you progress, generally you were looking at about six to eight weeks at a given level before you'd consider moving on. That was kind of the the rule of thumb that we would give our coaches.
0: Mm. And I understand. I mean, with all sort of training programs, it's not necessarily the sets and reps that are written down. It's it's what you're paying attention to and what you're coaching. And and obviously within this program, there's eight kind of specific cues that you're looking to to reinforce, isn't it? Yeah, hundred percent. So
1: yeah, you've hit the nail on the head. I think sometimes it's it's a question of quality over quantity, isn't it? And and generally speaking, the transfer of you know, most training programs is going to be the best when, you know, the athletes you're working with develop that necessarily control, you know, that degree of control, balance and and technique over the time that they do those exercises. Um, And obviously what underpins that is generally the ability to maintain a good posture and developing those characteristics that then underpin that efficient and safe movement patterning. Um, And so what we basically came up with is that if we knew that posture was an essential ingredient, in the reason why activate can bulletproof you know our athletes the question then becomes how can we help coaches to cue the correct posture and the movements while identifying potentially faulty postures or movements and correcting those in those players uh, and so across a lot of those activities within activate we generally had some common postures or movements that what i would say were fairly common faults from what i'd seen working with younger athletes uh, that coaches should emphasize in terms of the corrections But also they tied in quite closely with the postures that, you know, those coaches would be coaching in rugby usually. So hopefully that was going to give you know our technical coaches who are ultimately going to be the people using this. That would allow them to clue in into identifying faults and and correcting them as appropriate. So those are what we kind of end up calling our our key activate eight cues. And what we essentially came up with was a list of of eight internal cues. But over time now, we've kind of come to realize that actually if we start looking at that, maybe it's a little bit better to look at our external cues. So some of those can be converted um, you know, to external cues with a little bit of creativity or the use of analogies. So do you want me to rattle those off for you?
0: Yeah, yeah, let's do it.
1: Perfect. So we start off, we'll probably work from top to bottom. So we talk a little bit about our head. So particularly in a sport like rugby, our head plays a pretty key position, both in terms of ensuring if we find ourselves in a variety of positions, Uh, you kind of look at it and say your head generally does move around a little bit. So in terms of our head positioning, we have things like our our head neutral. So, for example, if we're doing a couple of our upright postures, we're looking at keeping our head neutral. But we also incorporate a couple of activities where we're in a prone position. So things like having our head up, um, which, you know, for In in a rugby sense, that can be things like in a jackal position or uh, for the front rowers like myself, that's things like our scrummaging posture. And so things like that, we might look at things like looking over um, the rim of our sunglasses. Um, If you imagine wearing sunglasses, you're looking over the rim of those in order to try and cue that movement. Um, the other ones are around things like our chest and shoulder positioning. So, um, I'm sure some of the listeners will probably be aware of things like the tower of power that, uh, England rugby used to probably still do push. Um, but it's a good kind of starting position for us, but we talk about things like having our chest up. So things like if they're wearing sports kit, generally you've got sports logos, um, that across there. So it might be show the badge or show the logo to the players in order to try and promote them keeping their chest up. Um, particularly if they're in these kind of hinge positions, and so on and so forth. The other side of that is then around the shoulder blades. So retracting or pinching our shoulder blades together, which might be something as simple as tell them, imagine i put a 50 P piece between your shoulder blades. I'd like you to pinch it together with the, the insides of those. Um, Another one then just moving slightly further down is around bracing through our trunk. So again, with a sport like rugby, being rigid and, and controlled through our trunk area is actually pretty important, particularly for things like scrummaging again, but also tackling uh, and being involved in the breakdown situation. So for that, we might look at something like uh, being a tree trunk. So if you ask the players, you know, if you're running at a tree, you're gonna run at the branches or the trunk. Why is that? Well, generally because the trunk is the more rigid, robust area that you're not really gonna get much purchase from. Um, other things around sort of hips and shoulders level. So if we're in a prone or a bear crawl position, um, ensuring we've got that nice tabletop from our, our hips and our shoulders. And and I always find one of the useful kind of keys for that is if I've got a rugby ball or something like that, I'll put it in the small of the back and then a good little piece of feedback then is if the ball moves or if it rolls forward or back, that generally indicates um, if there's a bit of an inequality there in terms of the hips are lower or the shoulders are lower. Um, obviously the key thing there is around making sure the players aren't sagging though um, and kind of overarching their back a little bit. And then once we've kind of focused on our, our upper body and our trunk area, then moving into our lower limbs. So things like having our hip, knee, ankle in line. So um, particularly when we're doing things like our landing and cutting, if we've got knees buckling into what we would call like our valgus positioning, we, we know that's generally not a particularly positive position to be in if you look at things like uh, your lower limb injuries, particularly non-contact anterior cruciate ligament injuries. So in terms of getting them into good habits to ensure that they've got that nice straight line from hip, knee and ankle, um, And then in terms of that, if we progress that to then things like our landing and change of directions, it might be a case of when we're asking players to land, we might look at them landing with soft knees. Now, that's not a terribly descriptive term. So we might look at a cue there like uh, land like a ninja because that kind of clues into a little bit. they most of them will know what a ninja is most of them will then know what if i need to learn like a ninja i'll need to land with soft knees a slight bend in the knees Um, and then the last one is around our knee over toes so again things like if we're doing a lot of lunge work particularly in our younger players we don't really want to be aggravating you know the tendons around the the knee and the patellofemoral joint so again ensuring that they're not overstretching too much there is is another key one for us as well so those are kind of our our key activate aqs
0: Mm, nice brilliant so uh, one of the things that uh, obviously we kind of discussed about when I came on the, the World Rugby Educator course for for Activate was that actually, while well, this, is, this is marketed as an injury prevention kind of program, it's actually just a really solid athletic development program, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'd probably even go further than that. I'd say it's just good practice. Rob. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm a little bit loath to call programs like activate injury prevention programs or injury prevention warm-ups because I mean, over time I found that if you use those phrases, uh, it tends to lead people to, to kind of close off the options around how they use those programs or what benefits can be derived. Um, you know, for example, if, You call it a preventive exercise program or, you know, you claim its sole benefit is going to be injury prevention. People are generally less likely to engage with it unless they think injuries are a problem, which isn't really going to be the case until injuries are a problem and they're starting to Mm. stack up. By which time, you know, you've lessened the potential effectiveness um, compared to if you would use them to begin with. So. Um, there's that kind of aspect. I'd also argue that, you know, the exercises in there, they're not specifically injury prevention exercises. You know, they, they wouldn't look out of place in an athletic development program or an anatomic adaptation phase of a program. Um, you know, even an injury rehabilitation program, you know, those exercises carry all of those benefits. It's just, as you said, they've been put into a program that's specifically designed to, you know, prevent injuries from happening in the first place. Um, but you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, the truth is that there are benefits beyond injury prevention, um, by using programs like activate it could be things like uh, you know the training effects of using the program which may help to prepare athletes for their sport but as we touched on before you know you've also got those indirect effects that can come from you know missing less time not from just rugby but other sports due to injury greater player availability and also you know things like then if you've got players that are available for training a bit longer that potentially aids you in, in terms of you know technical development as well
0: mm. so obviously you know the primary kind of I guess driver from a research perspective was the injury prevention so what is it about the program do you think that helps produce those benefits? It's a good question I think um, if you go back to answer that it's probably worth
1: starting with why you know injuries occur in the first place and, and I guess from a, a theoretical standpoint injuries generally happen from one of two reasons they either happen one when you know a given structure like a ligament or a muscle encounters a force that's beyond its capability to tolerate so that would be like an acute injury so you know for instance like tearing a muscle or or rupturing a ligament for example in an acute event you know particularly if you're landing or changing direction or even running Um, but then also you've also got another means of that which is when if a structure's kind of integrity so you know the muscle fibers and so on and so forth if they degrade over time potentially due to not having enough time to recover that can get to a point when you know a, a normally tolerable load actually becomes damaging, and that's a kind of our, our gradual onset injuries. So, in light of that, you then ask the question: Well, why might you know a program like Activate reduce the risk of those injuries? It, it could be because those exercises within that kind of provide a necessary training stimulus that actually enhances the forced hand capabilities of those structures. Um, but it could also be potentially because they help to preserve the integrity of those structures during periods of frequent exposure to force. Now, the question then becomes, well, which, which is it? And I guess the co- it's a combination of the two, depending on you know the circumstances around who's using the program. Um, but I guess if you if you're looking to kind of tie it together, underpinning both is actually around that that transfer of training, I guess, isn't it? So that's that's, I guess, yeah, kind of my my two pence worth on it.
0: Mm. So why do you think it's the most effective strategy to equip the technical coaches to deliver activate? Um, it's a very good question, I guess.
1: I'm, I'm not sure it's probably the most effective option per se, because, you know, I wouldn't want to denigrate the role of strength and conditioning now obviously there is a gold standard and that would be for players to be provided with, you know, regular and frequent access to an S coach uh, or expertise. And that ensures that they have, you know, they're getting adequately prepared for the demands of their sport. Now that's the gold standard, but you know, there are going to be plenty of settings that don't have access to that strength and conditioning expertise. So coaches using programs like activate can actually provide a great means of introducing the, the players to those foundational strength and conditioning practices that can meet the needs of those community level players. Um, and even for squads that do have SNC support, that can actually be a great means of increasing players' exposure to SNC practices if you don't have much time with them, for example.
0: Mm. I mean, I, I think it's a fantastic programme. I uh, was kind of instantly bought in after we did that first practical because it, it really ticks all the boxes from my perspective when I've done coach education workshops and, and basically similar kind of principles really where I've said – You know, actually, are you using your warm-up time effectively or are you just kicking high balls and playing Ring of Fire? Could we actually use that 10 or 15 minutes better? And actually, you're already equipped to, you know, analyze someone's technique in whatever... element of the sport, there's no reason why we can't kind of recalibrate your eye to look at these particular cues in the movement and get you to deliver it. So I think what you've done here in terms of the package is really, I think it's really neat. And I think it's, it's got real uh, power in the application. It's just obviously delivering that out. So what plans are there to kind of disseminate the Activate program kind of far and wide throughout rugby?
1: Yeah, I mean, so it's been
0: around since
1: about 2017 through England Rugby. And then, um, as you'd be aware, sort of Scotland Rugby have also, the SRU have also been pushing this out. Um, we've sort of been working on it over the last two years, really, on on this package, if you like, of of these different strategies. And and I guess from our perspective, you know, our end users are coaches involved in, in youth and adult community level rugby around the world. So, you know, our key audience includes those stakeholders around the people. Um I'm pleased to say we, we launched the program globally through World Rugby uh, in September last year. Um, and now the plan is to really address gaps in the awareness by working with our, our regional associations. We're, we're quite fortunate in that World Rugby is an organization that already has an established training and education network and a, a workforce around the world, that run a number of other courses across various strands of which coaching, strength and conditioning, match officiating and medical kind of feature quite heavily um, and we've also got six regional associations that, that sit just below us that take care of their own regions, if you like. So you've got Asia, North America, South America, Europe, um, Francophone and Anglophone Africa, and then also Oceania as well. Um, and then really the benefit of working with those regional associations is that we can tailor you know, the approach we want to take depending on the needs of, of the playing unions within those regions, because You know, you might imagine that the needs of a a union within one region are going to differ fairly drastically from another just due to the, you know, the environment that they sit in. So in terms of where Activate is, there's obviously the online content, which is available um, and it's easily findable on Google. Um, It's also going to be delivered as part of our existing training and education portfolio. And and that's primarily going to sit within World Rugby's level one coaching and, and strength and conditioning sources or courses with some signposting going into, you know, our other strands like Rugby Ready and and First Aid in Rugby. Um, So at the moment, I'm currently getting around the the world, clucking up some air miles, um, getting out there and actually training up members of our our training and education workforce. Um, You were one of the guys over in France a couple of weeks ago, um, where we kind of launched that in Europe for the first time. And and ultimately, what we hope is that having these courses means that within each region, we've got a small but but growing workforce that's going to be able to hopefully cater towards a growing demand for people going on this course as well Um, and that course is really designed to you know allow attendees to to see the program in practice Um, we want to give them an idea of um, leaning on some of the research that we did around getting an action plan in place um, that they can take away with them so that they can actually take something away saying this is how we're going to roll this out in our club or in our school teams and also we actually want to get them a chance just to practice the program in a you know, a relatively risk-free environment because it can I can imagine it can be quite daunting for a coach to take something like this they might not have um you know much experience in and then go and deliver that to potentially 25-30 players, that would that would be quite daunting. So the idea of giving them a little bit of a chance to coach this in a supportive environment would hopefully be a little bit of a confidence booster to them as well.
0: Mm. So if we've got any coaches listening who have kind of piqued their interest and are keen to to learn a bit more about activate, but haven't necessarily come across it before. What would be your kind of first steps that you suggest? I'd probably say to begin with, it's,
1: it's a little bit of a perception piece. And I know we spoke about this uh, a little bit earlier on in the, in the podcast, but we know that in a sport like rugby, generally good practice prevents injury. And, and I would always say activate is, is another example of that principle in action. So I'd certainly urge coaches to treat it as, as good practice, similarly to any other tool in, in their toolbox. Um, Particularly, first and foremost, if we have any questions in this day and age, now it's we're generally googling it as our first option. And as I've said, those materials are readily available online in a variety of different languages. So if they're unsure what the program actually entails or what it looks like, I'd, I'd say that's a good place to start. Um, if they're still unsure, it's probably attend, worth attending a workshop, as uh, as that's going to allow them to see the program in action. And, and I've already touched on a couple of those other benefits as well um hopefully once we've kind of got to that stage where you know we've convinced them that it's it's a good idea to include in their training and then pre-match warm-up routines um in when it actually comes to using activate I'd, i'd probably say the first thing first is i don't believe there is one way of using it as i don't think effectiveness is something that's constant um particularly in any form of coaching whether it's strength conditioning or technical is that you know a specific approach that works at one point in time doesn't necessarily guarantee it's going to well work as well in six weeks time. Um, you know, for me, I when someone ever says there's a set way of doing it, I'd always kind of say, well, that would be like me telling a strength coach that, you know, there's only one program that can develop upper body strength or, you know, a track coach. There's only, you know, one program to develop sprint speed when the truth is that there are a number of different variations that can achieve that same outcome. Um, so I would always say how a coach uses Activate can depend on their own coaching settings. Um, and one of the things I guess I've, I've sort of come up with over the last... Probably six months is around this continuum approach. So, if you can picture in a continuum, you know, on one hand, you've got a very structured delivery plan, and on the other, um, I would call it kind of a chaotic delivery. Um, so, if you talk about your structured delivery, that's going to have some benefits, particularly if, you know, the key is to developing understanding in players. So, if you're leading the program for the first time or a new level of exercises, you're probably going to want to do it a little bit more structured. You're going to want to put some structure around it because that's potentially then an opportunity to get some deliberate practice or deliberate practice in place. Particularly if you're a coach that's inexperienced or you're not very confident in using it. Um, and also if you've got a large player to coach ratio. Um, and then on the other hand, you've got this chaotic delivery, which might be things like mini games, breakout sessions, inclusion of other equipment um and potentially that might lend itself to a more experienced or confident coach um and also a coach that's got the luxury of quite a small player to coach ratio as well um and then you've kind of got everything in between that and then i guess if you look at it over the course of either using a level or the entire program it's possible to move you know from one end of the other of that continuum but also you could also move back as well as as you know your players become used to the exercises and what they're trying to achieve um I think that then also allows you to provide a source of a little bit of reinvention and variation that can keep things fresh for the players because experiences with a number of these other programs that generally the two big barriers are around things like time and players' enjoyment. So finding ways to reinvent and vary things to keep it fresh for players should also be a little bit of a source of keeping the compliance going as well. Um, the only caveat I would kind of add to that is that as a coach, it's important to think carefully about when you're going to progress along that continuum because, for example... Uh, in my experience with leading this in other countries generally the first thing coaches want to know is when can we get a ball involved in this Um, because you know for a variety of reasons primarily the way that the game is being coached now a lot of impact a lot of influence goes on actually having the ball involved and not just you know not just focusing on the body necessarily Um, but the challenge that then creates is that if you're talking about focusing on the exercise because we know that doing the exercise with the correct form is important generally what happens is when you include a ball, the focus moves away from what the body is doing, but then focuses on the ball, which potentially then might be reducing the impact of what we're trying to do anyway. So there are certain... I think coaches have to be quite discreet as well. Um, but then on top of that, as well as things like moving, progressing too far or too fast along, you know, the program, the other thing I'd emphasize is that is it okay to revisit an earlier approach? Um, you'd do the same thing if you were coaching a sports skill. So uh, again, if we're trying to draw parallels, I, I don't see why this should be treated any differently.
0: Mm. So a bit more broadly, I guess, is, is there any advice you would give to those coaching youth athletes based on what you know and the, and the kind of knowledge you've accumulated through your research? yeah
1: i mean i suppose i also did have a little bit of background in doing some actual proper coaching as a strength and conditioning coach um i guess probably in that sense there's there's not really anything new under the sun um i'd say pretty much everything that's got staying power and strength and conditioning adheres to some if not all of the basic principles so i think certainly if if you're looking to be developing sort of different repertoires and things like that i'd definitely say that you, you can't go wrong staying pretty close to those basic principles um I guess the other thing around is, is probably being this idea of being mindful, not mindless. Um, I guess certainly when I was younger as a, as a coach, it, it's all too easy to, to just blindly copy what someone else is doing because it looks good or, or it's brought some good results um, without much thought on why, you know, or what the consequences of that might be that if you used it in your setting. Uh, and I guess over that time, I've, I've kind of come up with this idea that, you know, if you uncritically accept a new practice, that usually then means that you uncritically dismiss it as well. And, and that's kind of how these fads are created. And I guess you only have to look at how many kind of fad practices there are out there to realize that that's still a thing. Um, I guess probably the other thing for me is also just being aware of your learning opportunities. Um, You know, one bad session doesn't make it a bad plan just as one good session doesn't make it a good one. Um, And sometimes it's important to understand why something works or or doesn't work. And and it goes back in the toolbox to be tried again another time. Um, Particularly also around things like trial and error. That's not something I've touched on with Activate, but I would say don't be afraid of, of trial and error in their practice. Um, Chances are a lot of young athletes are going to be new to the training too. And if you adhere to those basic principles, there's not really a a right or a wrong way. So if you'd set some guardrails there, they're a, a pretty good way to start, I guess. Um, mm. And then probably the last one is just around regressing a program. I think sometimes there's always this, this idea that it should always be progression. Um, and, you know, regressing a program for me is no bad thing. It, probably it's, it's not as bad as progressing when you should be varying or regressing. Um, and I think sometimes it's, you know, we are guilty of, of progressing a bit too far, too fast, because I think there's always a perception that development's this linear process of, of A to B and progression is the only direction you can go. Whereas in truth, that kind of ignores the fact that development, whether it's technical or physical, it, it's not a neat or linear process.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I've had that discussion with a lot, a lot of guests previously about actually, you know, it, it's it's a bit messy and a bit chaotic and it's not as as A, B, C, D as we'd quite like.
1: Yeah, I think you're probably right I think in terms of that it's I mean I'm sure most of the listeners will be aware of uh, Vern Gambetta and he's a guy that I do sort of read a lot of his work and listen to a lot of what he's got to say and I do like the idea of being comfortable with being uncomfortable I think as a coach you you often ask that of your players um, when actually as a coach you need to be expressing it yourself so certainly again I'd I'd urge coaches to start getting comfortable with getting uncomfortable because that's the reality that they're working in
0: Mm, absolutely so Thinking a bit further afield, Mike, are there any resources that you would kind of point youth coaches towards? Uh, yeah,
1: sure. I think probably the big one is actually people. Uh, you know, in my case now, I guess I'm at a stage where. I probably learn more now from people than from journal articles, books, or even sometimes coaching courses. Um, so certainly one of the big guiding points there would be surrounding yourself with people that you can bounce ideas off uh, and that are going to constructively critique your ideas and practices and, and raise your awareness of the alternatives as well. Um, certainly one of the ideas I'm, I'm trying to bounce around, particularly in this work with activators, around things like communities of practices and mentoring um, you know, particularly in things like you know, I've I've seen things like the Magic Academy um, that are kind of kicking off now with Russell Earnshaw and, and John Fletcher. That's more of a, a technical coaching thing. But I think it applies over here as well in terms of strength and conditioning is that particularly communities of practice and in, in mentoring. They're some of the most powerful and accessible methods out there if you're, you're prepared to be open and sincere with people. So certainly people and, and surrounding yourself with people that can that can actually lead you moving forwards, I think, is is a fantastic thing as well.
0: Yeah, I think that's um an area that of kind of coach development that isn't really that well utilized. I know Kelvin Giles has been quite outspoken about actually, we don't need more certifications. We need more mentoring going on where people actually come and see you in your daily practice. And what is, what does that session look like? And being, as you say, open and honest to, to criticism and feedback to improve not just to you know have that kind of style like you would when you're passing your driving test and you're never going to drive like that again you know the aim isn't to to uh, impress someone the aim is to you know want to improve your practice but there's a bit of a lack of mentoring in, in I guess coaching isn't there
1: I think so hundred percent and that for me kind of does it does you know it's one of those things that frustrates a little bit at times where I think it's there are people out there that are prepared to mentor it's just sometimes I think we can be a little bit uptight and and um, I think a lot of it does come back to how we receive feedback in some ways and, and ensuring that that's still a constructive experience. So perhaps we're not you know, necessarily keen to put ourselves out there to be shot down. In some cases, you only have to look at some of the stuff going around on social media to realize that that's that's a very real concern for some people. Um, but I think you, you're probably back to the kind of certifications thing. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think you're absolutely right. And um yeah it's it's one of those things where I hope in in the next couple of years we're going to see more and more of these communities of practice coming out because I think they can be actually much more powerful and and certainly if you look at some of the research out there in this day and age now, most coaches actually probably see more benefit in terms of learning new things from more informal settings. So if you consider your formal settings being, you know, conferences or coaching courses, actually a minority of coaches now still see, um, you know, value in that. Whereas your more experienced coaches, it's probably more around the informal settings because there is more of a personal feel to it. Um, I mean, I wouldn't say that, that that completely you should throw the baby out with the bathwater and coaching courses were all bad. It's just that... Um, They're probably catered towards a certain group of coaches being new to the maybe new to coaching, maybe new to sports and and maybe potentially if they're using things like strength and conditioning. Um, But there has to come a point where development keeps going. And I think probably attending more courses, it becomes a bit of a a diminishing returns game, really. And you have to look for other ways to kind of keep uh, progressing.
0: Mm, Absolutely. So if people are interested in kind of following uh, you you and your work a bit more closely where could they do that are you kind of out there on social media or yeah for sure
1: um i mean first and foremost i'd say go online um if they were to google world rugby activate that should probably take me through the key content so we've got the videos cue cards frequently asked questions um as you said there yeah i'm, I'm on twitter uh, i think it's at hislop underscore mike so if anyone ever has any queries at all either you know feel free to tweet me or, or dm me that's that's no bother at all uh, and then i guess if there's any interest around these courses that we've spoken about i would say check with your uh, your rugby unions training and education manager to see if they haven't got if they have any got any any upcoming courses and if not why not
0: mm. brilliant well mike it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you thanks for uh for sparing the time
1: no it's been great thank you very much for that rob
0: Thanks for listening to the podcast. We'd love to hear your reviews and comments, so please do leave us a review on your chosen podcast player. If you want to visit us on social media, you can do so using the handle at AthleticEvoUK on Twitter and Instagram or by searching Athletic Evolution on Facebook. You can also visit us at www.athleticevolution.co.uk. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. You know, not you don't know,